Salam alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 185, House of the Rising Sun. Today, we take a break from the endless wars of Seti I. Instead, we focus on someone else, the son of Seti. Prince Rameses, or Ramesses, began to gain prominence during his father's reign. Today, we meet the young Ramesses, and see the beginning of his tale. This episode comes to you on behalf of Stephen, Joe, and Hugh. These fine folks joined the Patreon as subscribers for an entire year. Thank you most kindly. Hugh, Joe, Stephen, may the Great Mother, Isis, and the Eternal Son, Horus, bless you and your loved ones. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. Come, let us meet a prince of Egypt. The year was 1299 BCE, regnal year 5, under Men Ma'at Ra, the king of southern and northern Egypt, the son of Ra. Seti I was in his mid to late 30s. He was mature, healthy, and powerful. He was also a family man. Seti I had a stable household. His mother, Sitra, remained alive. His wife, Toi, acted as the queen. And Seti had children, a new generation, to inherit and continue his legacy. King Seti had two children, at least. There may have been more, but the surviving monuments and records only reveal two for certain. There was a daughter named Tia, and we will meet her another time. There was also a son, Ramesses, named after his grandfather. Prince Ramesses shows up early in the reign of his father. His name means born of the sun, or rather born of Ra, a strong name that carried on the legacy of his grandfather and one that would become famous in the annals of Egyptian royal history. I won't beat around the bush on this chapter. Prince Ramesses will succeed his father and become the next king. Today, history knows this boy, or rather the man, as Ramesses II, aka Ramesses the Great. He is, arguably, the most famous pharaoh in all Egyptian history. Certainly, he's the one whose fame has endured for the longest. The name Ramesses is synonymous with Egyptian royal power. And as you can imagine, that fame has created a lot of mythology around the man, his life, and his world. As a king of Egypt, Ramesses is known as a mighty warrior, a majestic builder, an accomplished family maker, and a long-lived monarch. His monuments appear throughout the Nile Valley and beyond, from the hill countries of Canaan to the western deserts near Libya, from the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and all the way upriver into modern Sudan. The tales of Ramesses and his achievements have echoed across generations, both in the modern world and the ancient. That mythology is fascinating, and we will explore it as much as possible. But for now, I want you to forget everything you know about this king. As we begin his story, it's important to leave the mythology behind as much as possible. As a prince, Ramesses probably knew that he was going to rule. 
But the great events, the countless monuments, and the long, long life, those were still unknown. At the start of his career, there was really only one certainty. He was the son of a king in a new ruling household. So, just for today, let's forget the great pharaoh and meet the boy, Prince Rameses, born of the sun. To understand his life, we should begin with his corpse. Ramesses' body, embalmed and wrapped, survives today. It lies in the National Museum of Egyptian Civilization in eastern Cairo. And ever since its discovery, in the late 1800s, the mummy of Ramesses has undergone several scientific studies. I'll tell the full story of those examinations later, but working backwards, we can guess a few things about his early years. First of all, how old was the prince? Ramesses was probably 10 years old, give or take, when his father became king. According to forensic studies of his mummy, Ramesses was 80 to 95 years old when he died. That's a broad age range, but it does give a starting point. We know that when he was the pharaoh, Ramesses reigned for 67 years. So, working backwards, he must have been 20 years old, approximately, when he became the king. From that, we can estimate an age of 10 years old, give or take, when his father became the ruler. It's a very rough age range, just an educated guess, but it will do. At the start of his father's reign, Ramesses may have been 10 years old, or slightly older. What did he look like? The mummy of Ramesses shows a strong profile. His nose, in particular, is large and pronounced. Call it aquiline or Roman, the nose has a bold hook curving down towards his lip. That nose is slightly exaggerated because the embalmers packed his nose with linen during mummification. So when we gaze upon him today, Ramesses' proboscis may be a bit larger than life. His chin was short, like his father. In fact, the mummies of Ramesses and Seti I do bear a striking resemblance. Apparently, the boy took after his father in the genetic department. As for his general appearance, that is harder to measure. We have the mummy, but that's an old man, and the body has been desiccated, dried, and coated in resins. The process of embalming and preserving his corpse has modified every aspect of Ramesses' lifelike appearance. So this next part is tentative at best, and different scholars have reached different conclusions. The main question is his hair. Ramesses might have had reddish hair. A detailed study from 1976 to 1977 in France suggested that the hair of Ramesses was, at its base, a red colour. The authors described him as, quote, a ginger-haired individual. That conclusion is not universally accepted. The hair may have been dyed with henna during mummification, or the use of resins and oils may have stained the colour. We do know that other parts of Ramesses' body, like his hands, do have a slightly reddish tinge from the embalming oils, so it possibly affected the hair as well. But the French study was insistent that at a microscopic level, Ramesses' hair had a reddish tinge right down to its roots. I'm not an expert in forensic pathology, so I can't rule that out. And it is possible that the embalmers dyed Ramesses' hair red to more accurately reflect its original colour, 
The point is, Ramesses might have been a redhead. It's not scientifically proven, but it's not disproven either. As for his stature, that's a bit more certain. By the time he was fully grown, Ramesses reached 175 centimetres tall, or 5 foot 7 approximately. That might sound surprising. The king's mummy is quite slender, so it looks long, and from his reputation, it is easy to imagine Ramesses being much taller. The king is so famous, and his statues so big, that you'd sort of assume a tall, powerful man. Was that image a lie? Well, not so fast. In ancient Egypt, the average height for males seems to be around 165 centimeters, or 5 foot 3. That is a rough estimate, but the limits of diet and healthcare did mean that ancient peoples were shorter. So for his time, Ramesses was tall. To those around, and especially the more impressionable ones, the Prince Ramesses may genuinely have seemed like a larger-than-life figure. There are other aspects of his mummy and life that we can discuss, but we'll tackle those when Ramesses is an adult. For now, let's paint a quick picture of the boy at 10 to 15 years old. Around 1299 BCE, the young Prince Ramesses was probably a growing individual. He had a prominent hooked nose, a modest chin, and perhaps had reddish hair. He bore a strong resemblance to his father, Seti, and as his body matured, he gained a noteworthy height. By the time he was 15 or so, Ramesses may have seemed like an imposing figure. Tall, slender, and with striking features, he may have been quite handsome. Those are the physical characteristics of his youth, as far as we can guess. What about the cultural ones? How did Ramesses himself describe his childhood and his rise as a prince? In later years, when he was pharaoh, Ramesses commissioned monuments that described his youth and upbringing. These were retrospective, and they served a specific purpose, to glorify Ramesses and strengthen his claim to power. But these texts include some interesting details that might reflect reality. In one text from Abydos, Ramesses described his childhood and the role the gods played in bringing him to glory. Ramesses proclaimed, quote, I came forth from Ra, the sun god. It was Men Ma'adra, Seti, who raised me. The lord of all, Ra, or the king, made me great while I was still a child, until I became the ruler. Ra gave me the land while I was still in the egg, a child. The great ones of the land praised me when I became the hereditary noble, aka the chosen heir. End quote. Ra raised Ramesses and made him splendid. That may sound incredibly boastful, even arrogant, but there is a logic to it. Ramesses was not the first king to describe his childhood in this manner. Previous rulers had used the idea of the gods choosing them and glorifying them to legitimize their power and strengthen their rule. Decades before Ramesses, kings like Horemheb, Amunhotep III, Tutmos III, and even Hatshepsut had used the idea of the gods choosing or even creating them to rule Egypt. So it's not arrogance or boastfulness, necessarily. It's part of the pharaonic tradition, a way of justifying their control and legitimizing their rule. 
the pharaoh's power comes from the gods. So, logically, they chose this individual to rule over Egypt. And that idea was well established by the time Ramesses wrote this text. So when Ramesses describes the sun god Ra choosing him and raising him to glory, that doesn't necessarily reflect reality, or even Ramesses' true feelings. But it does give an insight into the role of a prince, the position they occupied in society, and how that role fit into the larger order of the world. A world created by the gods. So that text gives us an idea of the cultural system in which Ramesses grew up. But again, it doesn't tell us much about the person. Fortunately, other monuments of Ramesses add further details. A second text, commissioned when he was king, describes Ramesses' duties at the court of Seti I. Apparently, he did participate in his father's government. Looking back on his time as crown prince, Ramesses wrote the following, quote, The courtiers said to his person, Ramesses, You are like Ra in all that you have done. Every matter has passed through your ears ever since you governed this land. You took decisions while in the egg, in your role of a child. The affairs of the two lands were told to you while you were still a youth, wearing the sidelock of hair. You served as leader of the army when you were just a youth, in his tenth year of age. End quote. Essentially, Ramesses claims that from an early age, he participated in the government of the realm. Once his father became the pharaoh, Ramesses ascended at his side, and as crown prince, participated in the regulations and decisions of governance. He also references military authority. At the end of this passage, Ramesses calls himself an Emira Mesha, or overseer of the army. Supposedly, he was a general at ten years old. Basically, a child soldier. That sounds strange. Is it genuine? Well, there's a couple ways we could look at this. On the one hand, we can take this literally. Perhaps, as part of his regime, Seti I promoted his eldest son to be a general of the army. Even if Ramesses was not making decisions personally, he may have been present at military councils or decision-making events. He may have nominally led the army on campaigns or during parades. At the very least, he could have appeared before the armed forces as a general, quote-unquote. So maybe it was genuine. Even if Ramesses did not have authority, he might have had the title. On the other hand, this could be another case of Ramesses selectively changing his backstory. There are several monuments from the reign of Seti I that show Prince Ramesses, but none of those monuments call Ramesses a general of the army. Whenever he appears, Ramesses is simply called the king's eldest son of his body, whom he loves. A nice description, but there's nothing about military or government authority. That doesn't mean Ramesses was lying about this, but it does raise questions. The point here is that we have some information about Ramesses as a prince of Egypt, but most of that information comes from Ramesses' time as the pharaoh. With that in mind, we can't rely on this information too closely. Basically, I have my doubts about Ramesses' version of events, but I'm not going to call him a liar. There is more to say about Ramesses' time as a prince. 
especially later in his father's reign. For now, this is a good introduction. When Seti I became the pharaoh, Ramesses was probably 10 to 15 years old, approximately. He bore a strong resemblance to his father, with a prominent hooked nose, a modest chin, and maybe reddish hair. As far as we know, Ramesses was the only son of Seti, and as king, Seti I may have promoted Ramesses to be the visible crown prince, the chosen heir of his regime. There are some questions about Ramesses' administrative or military authority. He may have had actual power, or he may have had a more symbolic role. But either way, there's a decent chance that King Seti I promoted his son early and prominently. That being said, civic and military authority is only one part of a prince's duty. There was also a family responsibility. And Prince Ramesses fulfilled this duty spectacularly. After the break, we're going to explore Ramesses' household, specifically the women with whom he partnered and the children they bore. During his father's reign, Ramesses produced many children, and we know a lot about them. That is after the break. See you in a moment. When Seti I took the throne, his eldest son Ramesses was somewhere between 10 and 15 years old. As the prince matured and entered puberty, an important question naturally arose. Would the eldest son, the chosen heir, produce children of his own? Seti's royal house, the 19th dynasty, was relatively new to power, and one of the reasons they gained that power was because the old royal family, the 18th dynasty, ran out of sons. When King Tutankhamun died without heir, it left a power vacuum, and into that vacuum stepped prominent officials, ready to seize control. Now, a few decades later, Seti I must have recognised that situation could easily happen again. And if Prince Ramesses happened to die young, the dynasty might be over before it began. As a result, King Seti appears to have made arrangements for his son. At some point during his reign, the pharaoh summoned his eldest boy child, and Seti presented Ramesses with a gift. A gift of women. The story told by Ramesses goes like this, quote, He, Seti, gave me, Ramesses, a house of women from the royal apartments. The women were comparable with the beautiful ones of the king's house. He, Seti, chose for me wives throughout the land, taking secluded ones for me. The household was welcoming. End quote. To ensure the continuation of his family and the stability of the royal line, Seti, well, he set Ramesses up. The king chose a collection of ladies to form a house of women, more literally a female household, or peret. These women came from different parts of Egypt, and they came in two different categories. Ramesses mentions wives, or chemu, and secluded ones, chenerio. Presumably, this is something like wives and partners, women who were officially recognised, and those who were less official. The terms are a bit hard to translate. What is clear is that these women formed a new household for Ramesses, and the king chose them personally. 
As far as names, Ramesses is silent. He doesn't tell them. But we can guess at least two of these ladies. The first wife was named Nefret Iri. You probably know her better as Nefertari, the famous queen of Ramesses II. Nefertari, or She Has Become Beautiful, will be one of Ramesses' primary wives. She will bear many children for her husband, and her name will live forever in the annals of history, thanks to some truly spectacular monuments. The second wife was named Aset Nefret. She is better known as Iset Nofret, which means something like Isis the Beautiful, Isis is Beautiful, or Beautiful for Isis. Whichever version you prefer, someone in that equation was gorgeous. Iset Nofret is less famous than her counterpart, Nefertari, and we know less about her historically. But make no mistake, this lady is equally important to our tale. Iset Nofret will have her own influence on royal life and politics. So, Iset Nefret and Nefret Iri. Apparently, Ramesses' two primary wives were both beauties, or Neferu. Whether that reflects their genuine appearance, we will never know. And it doesn't matter. One thing we can say is that later in life, Ramesses appears to have cared for these women genuinely. So Iset Nofret and Nefertari are both going to be important characters in our story to come. Ramesses tells how Seti chose these women, Setebenef, from across Egypt. Presumably, the king selected ladies who were physically attractive or politically attractive. Women from influential and powerful families. Whatever his criteria, it's fairly clear what was happening. Seti was creating a family for his eldest son. It's not hard to figure out the goal. Seti probably wanted Ramesses to make babies. Prince Ramesses was the eldest son of Seti, but as far as the evidence records, he was also the only son of Seti. That's a tenuous thread for a royal household. If the heir happens to die young or unexpectedly, things might get complicated very quickly. From that perspective, it's a fair bet that King Seti gave these women to Ramesses in order to encourage children. Fortunately, he did not have to wait long. Ramesses, Nefertari, and Iset Nofret got busy. Really busy. Over the next six or seven years, these three individuals together produced at least ten children. Four sons and six daughters entered this world during Ramesses' time as a prince. Some of these children are famous, with abundant records and information. Others are obscure, barely more than names. But together, the first ten children are an interesting group. Let's meet them quickly, starting with the sons. The first son was named Amun Kher Wenemef. His name means the god Amun is upon his right arm, meaning that Amun strengthened the active arm of the child. If the prince grew up and fought in battle, Amun would guide his sword hand, helping him defeat his enemies. The date of his birth is unclear, but we do know the mother. Amun Herwenemef was born to the princess Nefertari. So, at an early age, Nefertari was responsible for producing the next heir. Presumably, that elevated her status quite significantly, and it may be one of the factors that made her the principal wife of Ramesses. 
So Amunher Wenemeth, born of Nefertari, was the first son, but the second followed soon after. This time it was Ised Nofret, the second wife, who birthed the boy. This child was named Ramesses after his father. Ramesses Jr. would grow up in the palace and eventually serve his father when he became the king, and while he wasn't the eldest, he was at least the spare, the second heir should anything happen to Amunher Wenemeth. That's two sons, two more to go. The third son was named Pa-Ra-Her Kopeshef. That translates as, the son, Pa-Ra, is upon his sword, Kopesh. Again, this boy came from Nefertari, making her the mother of the heir twice over. Pa-Ra-Her Kopeshef, sometimes called Pre-Her Kopeshef, which means the same thing, would follow in the footsteps of his elder brothers, and grow up as Ramesses' privileged son. Finally, there was boy number four. This son was named Ha-Em-Waset. The name means appearing in Thebes, or Waset, which might indicate the child was born in that city. Perhaps Ramesses and Iset Nofret, the child's mother, were visiting the south when she reached her moment of labour. That's just a guess based on the name, but appearing in Thebes is distinctive, and it might connect the boy with that city. Ka-em-waset, or Ka-em-waset, is surprisingly famous. Although he is the fourth of Ramesses' many children, he would grow up to have an interesting and noteworthy career. Remember that name, Ka-em-waset. We'll be seeing him again. These sons, Amun-her-wenemeth, Ramesses Jr., Paraher Kopeshev, and Ka-em Waset would grow up in Prince Ramesses' female household, his peret. Their daily lives would be full of royal amenities. Nurses, both male and female, would care for them and educate them at a young age. Later, they would study writing and learn the language of scribes. They would receive education in religious doctrines and the philosophies of government. They would train in the fighting arts to be warriors and commanders. And as they grew, they would be gradually directed into jobs, responsibilities, and households that served their father's needs. Now, compared to 99% of their country folk, these boys would enjoy incredible comforts and privileges. At the same time, though, their destinies were pretty much set from the moment of their birth, and even before. The four boys, born to a ruling prince, were the future of the royal house. That would bring many expectations. We know a lot about the sons of Prince Ramesses. Unfortunately, the daughters are more mysterious. We know their names and the rough order of their birth, but the details are often vague. Very briefly, here is what we know about the girls. The first daughter came from Iset Nofret, and this child was called Bint Anat. That translates as the daughter of Anat. A curious name, who is Anat exactly? Well, Anat, or Anath, is a goddess, but not an Egyptian one. This deity, Anat, came from Canaan. Supposedly, Anat was a beautiful but fearsome goddess, capable of great violence. A curious figure to name your baby after, but I suppose beautiful and fearsome 
could equally apply to Hathor, Sachmet, Bast, or any number of Egyptian female deities. So no harm, no foul. Ramesses' first daughter was Bint Anat, the daughter of Anat. The second daughter was called Bachet Mut. She was born to Nefertari, the first girl child for that lady. The name of this child means the female servant of Mut. Again, that might imply she was born in the city of Waset, or Thebes. After all, Mut, the mother goddess, had her primary temple and priesthood in that city. That's just a guess, maybe her parents were being overly pious. But a name like the female servant of Mut might hint at her place of birth. The third daughter was called Nefertari. As you can guess, she was another daughter for the princess Nefertari. Born sometime in the reign of Seti I, Nefertari Jr. is kind of a shadowy figure. We see her occasionally on royal monuments, but there's no evidence she ever took a prominent role in her father's court or household. Maybe she died early, at a young age, we don't know. But Ramesses' third daughter, Nefertari Jr., is hard to follow. The fourth daughter was also born to Nefertari, her third. This child was called Merit Amun, or Beloved of Amun. Again, maybe that hints at the city of her birth, or conception. Unclear, but Merit Amun would grow up to be a prominent member of the court and serve her father in prestigious roles. We do not know much about her childhood, but Merit Amun will appear again in our story. So we've had four girls already, one for Iset Nofret, three for Nefertari. Add those to the four sons, and Prince Ramesses produced at least eight children over several years. Getting tired? Fair enough. I'm sure the mothers were exhausted. But power and politics do not wait on comfort. There are two more children to meet. After a string of Nefertari daughters, the next two girls both came from the loins of Iset Nofret. The fifth daughter was called Nebet Tawi, meaning Lady of the Two Lands. Again, she would be a prominent part of her father's court and household, so like her elder brother, Kha'em Waset, it is worth remembering her name, Nebet Tawi, the Lady of the Two Lands. The sixth daughter, also born to Iset Nofret, was named Iset Nofret. I can only assume that after producing a few children with various names, each mother got her own junior equivalent. Maybe a thank you for putting up with all this labour, or maybe a special bond between mother and child justified the duplication of their names. It's unclear. But just as Ramesses named a son after himself, the two princesses, Nefertari and Iset Nofret, both had daughters named after them. So daughter number six was Iset Nofret Jr. Like her half-sister, Nefertari Jr., we do not know much about her. It's not clear why. Maybe they both died young, or maybe Ramesses favoured his unique children, rather than the ones named after their mothers. Perhaps he was bad with names. At any rate, Iset Nofret Jr. came forth, the third daughter of her mother, the sixth daughter of her father. These are the girl children born to Ramesses when he was a prince. In the future, there will be more. Many, many more. But for now, six is enough. 
and with four sons to complement his daughters, Prince Ramesses had done his duty, repeatedly. Before he became king, Ramesses had fathered at least ten children on his two primary wives. Nefertari and Iset Nofret were incredibly productive during this period. Year after year, the princesses underwent pregnancy, labour and delivery. It's genuinely remarkable that they didn't die in the process of these childbirths. We should always remember that in the pre-modern world, bearing children was one of, maybe the, leading cause of death for most women. The labour, physical damage and blood loss were incredibly difficult to heal in an age of limited medical knowledge and technology. We can assume that Nefertari and Iset Nofret had access to the very best in midwife care and medical professionals. Nevertheless, this was an incredible achievement. We should acknowledge their stamina and good fortune to undergo this process and emerge healthy and strong. Every year, like clockwork, they bore a new child. You can almost imagine, following each birth, the princess handing her new baby off to a wet nurse. She spends some time recovering, but soon the duty calls. The prince visits, a child is conceived, and the whole process starts again. Oof. Sometime during his reign, Seti I made a pivotal choice. He gave his son, Ramesses, a household of his own. And over the next few years, the young prince, along with his wives, Nefertari and Iset Nofret, got busy. Ten children, at least, came forth over the next several years. This rash of teenage pregnancies was not a problem, quite the opposite. The birth of new children was a blessing for the royal house. King Seti had a son, Ramesses, and now that son also had sons. Multiple sons, to perpetuate the family. In pure political terms, the succession was guaranteed. Just as old Horemheb had looked to Paramesu and Seti as the new heirs, now Seti could look to Prince Ramesses and Amunherwenemef, or Ramesses Jr., or Paraherwenemef, or Khaemwaset, as his next generation. Of course, that did not mean Seti was done with his rule, far from it. But for a king in his late thirties, reflecting on the past, it may have been a relief to see the future was a bit more certain. In the short term, Seti's gift had done something valuable. It had guaranteed the future of the succession, and it had expanded the scope of the royal household. That would have benefits in the short and medium term. More sons and daughters allowed the royal family to expand its power, authority, and its control over various aspects of society. In the long term, though, Seti's decision was going to have far-reaching and calamitous consequences. He didn't know it at the time, but Seti's son was going to produce many, many children. And eventually, there would be dozens of branches on the family tree. Each of those branches was intimately connected with the royal power, and closely tied to the throne. And yet, only one of them could hold and control that ultimate power. Looking back, Seti's decision to give Ramesses a household of women would ultimately cause the destruction of the 19th dynasty itself. But that is a story for another day.
Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. Before we leave, a couple of quick announcements. First of all, thank you to everyone who completed the listener survey questionnaire. We gathered over 800 responses, which was excellent. And to show my thanks, I will be releasing a bonus episode about some of my favourite tombs and their owners. Little sights and stories that bring me joy, and I want to share with you. Keep an eye out for that over the next couple of months. It'll take a while to get the material together, but it will be out before too long. Speaking of months, I also need to update you on the podcast schedule. The past six months have been unusually productive on my end, and we've powered through some exciting and extended stories. The reign of Seti I has left an abundance of archaeological, artistic, and textual material, and we've only just scratched the surface of the monuments and tales from this period. I look forward to sharing more of these in the near future. However, I do need to alert you to something important. Later in the year, the podcast narrative will be taking a break for approximately eight weeks. From September 15 until November 15, we'll be hitting pause on Seti, Ramesses, and the 19th dynasty. There are two reasons for this. First, I'm working on a special project for the podcast, which requires my full attention. More information about that when it's ready to announce. The second reason is more personal. I'm getting married. In late September, I'll be heading overseas with my partner to get married in her home country. Then we'll be travelling on our honeymoon for a few weeks. It's very exciting, and I'll share photos or details at the appropriate time. But between now and then, there are a lot of things to finalise, prepare, and complete. To make sure I'm giving them my full attention, I will need to pause the main narrative during that period. Don't worry, there will still be content, just not the big, heavy history. Instead, there'll be a few weeks of lighter episodes about smaller, interesting topics. That will give me the breathing space I need to focus on an important personal event. So once again, the 19th Dynasty narrative, Seti I, Prince Ramesses, and all of that, will be pausing from September 15 to November 15, while I do a special project and then go get married. It's an exciting time for the podcast and personally. As always, thank you for your support. On the next episode, we'll catch up once again with Seti. The King's Wars are finished, for now, and there is work to do in the Nile Valley. Most notably, Seti has business at Abydos. The ancient city, sacred to Osiris, is about to benefit hugely from Seti's royal patronage. That is next episode. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. In 2023, the show is an ever-expanding household, with 185 children, or narrative episodes, in its palace, and countless side children waiting in the wings. I could not create these metaphorical kids without your generous support. To everyone that listens to the show, supports it on patreon.com, or makes donations, thank you kindly. And I'd especially like to thank the priests. These most generous backers fill the podcast house with new children. Hmm, okay. The metaphor has gotten away from me, but thank you to the priests. Veronica, Paul, Ashley, Martha, Stephen, Nidin, Kyla, Evan, Andy and Chelsea, Mykost, Yola, Tere, TJ, and Linda. Folks, you are all too generous. May the beautiful Isis and the child Horus bless your family, your loved ones, 
and your house. That's all from me. I'll see you soon. Take care, and may you enjoy a beautiful home.